Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Summit Community Church. Like I said, my name is Ian Wallen, and uh, it's good to see all of you this morning. Um, who was here last week when we when we launched a sermon, a new series, uh, a new sermon series about the essentials of the church? And we're going to be going through the book of Acts and looking at different essentials of the church. And uh, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I hated it. It was awful. It was terrible to think that we could come in here. I'm just being sarcastic. I'm sorry. And I have to put in the sarcasm jar. Um, and if you don't know, we have a sarcasm jar, so you know you're at the right church this morning um, because we do have our sarcasm jar. But... <laughs> When you hear that with the Holy Spirit, this is going to be so much more, and church is going to be so much more, and empowered, and we have the Holy Spirit as a helper, to think that we can't come in on a Sunday morning, sit and be passive Christians, that God is calling us to be so much more, it thrills me but it also terrifies me in some regards because it means that there's a standard that God has set and that he's given us the Holy Spirit to get us there. But I'll tell you why it scares me. And I think this is one of the reasons. Today, in the world we live in, the, the spiritual has been replaced by the secular, okay? And it's been going on for a long, long time. It was, in the, it was in the 1880s that the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead, okay? And it's just been going and going. And the, the thing that they say, that we hear, is that maybe back then, maybe years and years ago, it was okay to need God, to need religion, right? Because there were so many things that were unknown. There were so many things in the world that we couldn't explain. And so it was fine if we had some stories to help explain why it rained or why it didn't rain. But now human progress and human evolution says we've solved all those answers. We don't need God anymore. And so the spiritual things that we talk about, when we hear about the way that the Holy Spirit impacts us and empowers us and helps us, when we walk out into the world, it seems a bit odd, right? Because the world is saying, this is all that there is. But I don't know about you, for all the advances that we've made, we are still a mess. The world is still a mess. And in some cases, I think it's getting worse, not better, right? You turn on the news, are you encouraged by the state of humanity right now? I don't think I am. So the Holy Spirit in the church is more relevant today than ever. And when we see the church come alive, what Pastor Travis was talking about last week, how is it's a celebration and we can get excited when we have the Holy Spirit. 
he laid the foundation. He laid the foundation of the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, what the Holy Spirit is. And so for two more weeks, we're going to be talking about the essentiality. I, I think that's a word. We're going to be talking about the essentiality of the Holy Spirit in the church. But I have a tough message this week. So it's convenient that uh, Travis skips town when I have to preach on Acts 5. Uh, and if you don't know what Acts 5 is, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So if I could make probably the first meme in Summit Community Church history, do you remember Lion King? And they're standing on top of Pride Rock and Mufasa's there and he's showing Simba the kingdom. He says, everything that the light touches will be yours. And Simba's like, well, what's that shadowy part over there? Mufasa goes, well, that's Acts 5, 1 through 11. We don't touch that part in the Bible. So we go right to Acts 5, 12, and it's so easy that we can just, oh, yeah, you read it, and you're like, what did I just read? What? What? So Travis, if you're listening this morning, which you probably are, as a church, we forgive you for jinxing the Celtics in game seven. Uh, you had to be there, and they had to lose, and so now we have to watch Cleveland and Golden State for the fourth year in a row. But that's okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which empowers us. We thank you that you're showing us through the early church what is essential. And I pray this morning as we look at a difficult passage that you speak through us and that we don't get discouraged but encouraged. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're already at Acts 5, good for you, but I hope you weren't turning while I was praying. Because we have to go back to, to chapter 4 for a little bit to really set the stage for, for what we're going to be talking about. Because last week, Travis, he gave us this picture of what the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit, when he's welcomed into the church, affects the church, how he helps us, how he empowers us. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, in the first few chapters, we're kind of, we're given that blueprint but then we start to see it played out in the lives of the early church. We see what it really looks like. So let's turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Because this morning, before we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we have to understand that the Holy Spirit was at work in the church. That it wasn't just some idea that it actually made a difference. It actually transformed the way that the church was working. So we start to see it work. In verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the great grace that was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as there were owners of land or houses sold them, 
and brought the, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So when I'm reading that passage and I'm seeing the church of Acts sacrificially giving, boldly testifying to what they had seen, witnessing in the face of persecution, we're seeing the Holy Spirit transform them. Because I don't know if you remember who these people were before the Holy Spirit came. We had Peter who denied him, Thomas who doubted him. Later we see the transformation of Paul who was persecuting the church. When God got a hold of their life, it was like a a switch was flipped. Because it must be pretty amazing for somebody to just say, oh, I'm going to up and give my house and sell everything that I have so somebody else can, can not be in need. But when I see the church move through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that happen. And people are going to be taken care of. And there's something else that I love about this in the early church because it, it attests to the reliability of Christianity. And when somebody is skeptical and they come up to you and they, they have doubts and they're skeptical about, well, I don't, you know, maybe it was just invented by men, the whole Christianity thing. Something happened 2,000 years ago that, that changed the world. You can look at it through history, but something happened in Palestine and the effect rippled and it changed the entire Roman Empire. What was that? It was something. Something happened, right? It was the transformation of the early church to be so impactful in their world. And so anytime anybody's skeptical, just... Ask them, well, what happened? It had to be something for the world to change the way that it, that, that it did. And that happens at a church level, but that also happens at an individual level. And the historian um, or theologian N.T. Wright, he tells this story about the transformation of a person. For James and others like him, the whole idea of character and of it being transformed in the way I'm describing is simply foreign territory. Now that he has come to faith, people in his church expect him to believe in a particular way and not to behave in other particular ways. But this is seen not in terms of character, but in terms of straightforward obligation. In other words, Christians are expected to live by the rules. So if that's difficult for you this morning, this might not be the place for you. When they fail as they will, they are simply to repent and try to do better next time. You're either living a Christian life or you don't. Any suggestion of some kind of moral transformation, a long, slow change of deep heart-level habits would be suspect. It would look like justification by works 
that is trying to earn one's way to salvation. Keeping the rules doesn't contribute to your justification or salvation. It's just what you're expected to do. And I'm going to finish that, but anybody ever notice that as a Christian you're held to a higher standard? And when you fail, people love to stick it in your face. It's like, well, you're the Bible boy. You can't talk like that. But the truth of the matter is that you are expected to be held to a higher standard. And that's not an easy thing for me to say, but it's true. If you encounter God and are transformed through salvation, your life needs to be different. It needs to be changed. You need to be transformed. If there's any change of character involved, it happened already at conversion through the action of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit really has come to live in someone's heart and life, that person automatically wants to live in accordance with God's will. It shouldn't be a matter of moral effort and struggle. And that was something that Travis was talking about last week. When you look at a new believer and it's alive in them. And you don't have to force them to pray or read the Bible. There's a, there's a passion there because the Holy Spirit has transformed them. And what they used to not be able to do, now they do it. right? And you look at them and you're kind of like, man, they threw out all those old music CDs. That's one that everybody always talks about. They're old magazines and how their old life is gone and they want to just start over new because God turned that light on. He flipped that switch and they saw their sinful ways. One of my favorite examples of someone being transformed by the gospel is somebody named Brian Head Welch. And you might not know that name, but he is a charming guy. And if... if if Emma or Audrey brought home somebody <laughs> that looked like this, I, you know, you know, there are only two, so, I, so I've got some time to really think about it. And yes, I'm judging a book by its cover, but in his case, he was the lead singer of a little band called Korn. And if you don't know that name, congratulations, you passed the Christian test. <laughs> but he tells his story and his story goes like this. And in this case, he was, he was in a rock band. He was doing the drugs. He was having, it was the whole picture. And his life was a mess. And he, he tells a story, and you can find it. It's um, I Am Second is the name of the organization that he tells his testimony through. And he said he was doing a line of coke. And he just, he said, he looked up and he said, God, if you're real. You need to change this. And man, you want to talk about transformation. And he still looks that way, which kind of holds me accountable and I need to be convicted. Because <laughs> what if he walked into this church this morning? How would we look at him? That's another matter, but... So his life was transformed, and it's amazing because uh, I was following up on him and his story, which is just an amazing testimony, and he's so on fire for the Lord. But it's interesting because he, went, he recently went back to his band, him and another friend who were saved, so the two of them. And the way that he explains it in the interview, and I, I encourage you to look at these as well, 
he said, those are God's people in those concerts. And I can relate to them. They are my tribe. And I need to go back to them and witness to them. <laughs> That's only somebody who, who would say that, who's been transformed by God and realizes the call of the church is to go to the people where they are and show the love of God. And I love that story. I love that story because God transforms us. There's something else that he does, um, is that he leads us. So not only does God transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church, but he leads us. And as we look through Acts and as we go through Acts, we see examples of this over and over and over again, of the Holy Spirit leading the church clearly, powerfully. In Acts 26 through 29, um, in Acts 8, 26 through 29 and, and 39, there's a story of Philip in the Ethiopian. And the Holy Spirit clearly says to Philip, I want you to go and I want you to speak to this person. And then the Holy Spirit, when the, the job is done, leads him away. In Acts 10, 19, and 11, 12, Peter has the vision with Cornelius. That's the Holy Spirit leading him to grow the church to the Gentiles. That's the Holy Spirit leading the leadership of the church to say, this is where I want you to go. And as the elders of this church have been, have been meeting, and I'm so encouraged by this, we've been told just listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying for the church. Listen to where the Holy Spirit is going and just follow. Because in Acts 13, 2, Paul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit tells the church, they're meeting together, and the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas from my mission to the Gentiles. So not only does the Holy Spirit transform us and lead us as he works through the church, he does so much more. But unfortunately, I have to get to what I said I would get to today, which is the brokenness of the church. Because even in the midst of the Holy Spirit working, even in the midst of everything that was going on, we have Acts 5, 1 through 11. In verse 1, it actually says, uh, in the ESV, it says, but, which is really something that's unfortunate. Because we're coming off this high, right, of what we read earlier of ver uh, chapter 4, 32 through 37, of all this great stuff that the, the Holy Spirit was doing through the church. And it's like you hit that speed bump and you hear something and you're like, that's going to be expensive for my car. Um, <laughs> So let's read. 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I mean, that's enough right there. Like, whew. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, Verse 7. After an interval about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Real easy piece of scripture. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, we have to, we have to look at and set, this, set the stage because this could be like, uh, you know, I got to uh, go do something and I, I'll be back later. You know, like it makes us uncomfortable when we hear something like this in scripture. But what we have to do is look at the motivation of Ananias and Sapphira. And their names and, um, had Hebrew names. And the, the suggestion that they had land ownership indicated that they were probably Palestinian Jews. And they were no way going to be outdone by Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. And so they're coming in and they, they, they look at what happened when Barnabas sold his property. And they say, well, look at this guy. He's a deacon now. And he's only been in the church for three months. I, what, you know, I need my recognition. I need my due. They were no way going to be outdone. So there's a, the, it looks like there's a pride issue going on. That they wanted the recognition of the church. They wanted their name on the wall with the plaque of how many people have tithed the most. And so they thought to deceive. Or maybe it was greed. And they wanted the recognition, but they wanted the money more. But the important thing here is that their sin was a choice. Just like our sin is a choice. When, people, when, when Eve tried to pass off her sin and when Adam tried to pass off his sin, that was something that they did. And when we sin, it's something that we do. It's not that somebody takes control of our bodies and, and puppets us around. Everything that the people in the church were doing leading up to this moment was voluntary inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nobody was coerced into selling their property. Nobody was coerced into supporting the needy. It was something that they did because they saw what what Christ showed as an example. It was all voluntary. And that's what this church needs to be. Nobody's pressuring you into doing anything. Just like nobody was pressuring Ananias and Sapphira to sell their property. 
Peter said um, in verse 4, well, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your land? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So he's saying, look, this was yours. You didn't have to give it to the church. You didn't have to do that. The commentator Matthew Henry says, they kept it anyway, as if God couldn't return it all to Ananias and Sapphira. And how often are we greedy with what God has given us because we don't trust that he can replace it. And we don't have faith that God will take care of us even as we support others. Now, I'm not talking about being unresponsible. You have to take care of your family. You have to make sure that you don't go homeless helping the homeless because that doesn't help anybody, right? Does that make sense? Be responsible. So it's a fine line, and that's where listening to the Holy Spirit comes in to say, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to support this person. When you feel led to give and you know that it's by the Holy Spirit, go and watch him provide for you. Watch him provide for you. The second problem about the brokenness of the church is that it affects others. So it wasn't just Ananias, and it wasn't just Sapphira, but their sin together made it worse. And they worked together. And when Sapphira came in, she had the price that they had agreed to. Do you see that? So they had, they had plotted beforehand, okay, so here's, here's what we got. How much are we going to say that we sold it for? Because they had the same answer. It was for so much. And it affected both of them. And our sin, the way that we always pass it off is that this is mine. This is mine. I understand what it is, but it's not hurting anybody else. That is the biggest lie the devil ever told us. Because as much as you think you're hiding it, um, as much as Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could get away with their sin, it will always affect others. Because it's affecting you. And you have relationships to people. So if you're struggling with sin, that's going to affect your relationship to your family, to your friends, and to this church. There's a perfect parallel that's found in Joshua 7. And I'll just turn there real quick because this story is spot on. And the word that is actually used for when they held back part of the property is the same word that's used here in Joshua 7. And I'll set the stage for a minute. The Israelites had just conquered Jericho. They'd marched around seven times. You know, we've all seen the Veggie Tales. They marched around the city seven times. The city fell. And God said, look, everything in that city is consecrated for myself. And you're like, whoa, God, that's pretty. Yeah. Okay, he just collapsed an entire city by having people walk around it. I think he can take what's his. So he said to the Israelites, he said, I don't want you to take anything in this city. But we'll see what happened. 
chapter 7, verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabadi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth, Beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebraim and struck them at the desert. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord that evening. He said to the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, why can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And I'll just summarize the rest of the story because what happens is that Joshua gets up. And I love the picture that's presented here because Joshua, he's like, oh man, we messed up. What happened? You know, we've sinned. Like, God's like, get up off your face. You're whining and pounding because something went wrong. Do something about it. And how often do we get stuck in our sin and the devil convinces us like, yeah, you know, I sinned again. I just, no, there's nothing I can do. You know, oh, I'm a miserable sinner. I might as well just keep on sinning. And God says, no, get up off your face. I've got something for you to do. And so if through the rest of the chapter, God directs Joshua to go through the tribes then through the clans, then through the families, to Achan. And I can imagine Achan standing there, getting really nervous. And he's starting to sweat. And finally it comes to Achan. And the same fate that befalls Ananias and Sapphira befalls Achan. But what happened was that because of one person's sin, the entire nation of Israel suffered. Our sin affects others. But that's not the end of the story. Because as we see, the Holy Spirit protects his church. Even in our brokenness, the Holy Spirit is there to protect his church. When we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us, he will protect us. And what's amazing is that he chose to use his people. 
the same way he chose to use Peter and Paul and the other apostles, he'll, he'll use us. And not only does he choose us, but he equips us. Because there was no way that Peter could have known that plot, right? There's no way that he could have known what happened. Because for appearance sake, Ananias and Sapphira, they come, they sold their property, they say, I want to give this in tithes. But what was it? It was the Holy Spirit that went up to Peter, that told Peter, said, there's something not right here. And because of that supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit, the fear of the Lord was put into the people of the church. And I, we need that. We need a proper place for the Holy Spirit. We need a proper fear of the Lord. And these are serious consequences. I get that. Because we read this story and they're like, wow, they just dropped dead. But sometimes God needs to use severe examples to get our attention. And don't worry, hopefully nobody will drop dead by the end of the service. I'm praying that you all walk out of here today. And even throughout the, the rest of the New Testament, there's examples of people who are deceitful and who don't die. So why the severity? Why this extreme case? Because God wanted to put into perspective the stakes of being in this room, of claiming to be a Christian. This isn't like joining your local YMCA, okay? This has eternal consequences. And so when you sign your name and say, I believe in Christ and I call myself a Christian, this is what you're signing up for. And I'm afraid that we have gotten so lax in the church that we look at these examples and they don't spark the fear of God in us. And we need that. And there's something else about this that's, that's important. God did this early in the church. Stanley Horton said God brought the, this judgment near the beginning of the church's history to let the, know, to, to let the church know what he thinks of unbelief, greed, and self-seeking hypocrisy that lies to God. In the times of beginning, God is more severe because he wants to set the standards. He wants us to know these are the terms. And in the story of Achan in Joshua 7, that happened just after they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. So God is saying to the Israelites, look, you're going, to be in my you're going to be my people. You're going to be in my promised land. Here's the stakes. Step up. We put ourselves at risk if we do not take the mission of the church as seriously as God does. I'll say that again. We put ourselves at risk if we do not take the mission of the church as seriously as God does. We're going to sell ourselves short. 
we're going to sell God short. And if we're not careful, we're going to get to the point where we think that we can deceive the church and deceive God. And I'm ready for the day when the Holy Spirit is in this church and says, not in my house. And sin comes to light. Some of us might be a little nervous about that. But what happens when the Holy Spirit is in the church is that sin cannot exist. Sin flees. And the Holy Spirit will always come and he will always show up and expose our sin. It might be years later, but it's going to come to light. And I think the church as a whole is dealing with that. When we think about the, the, the Me Too movement and how that's coming to the church and there's that the church to hashtag, all these people and everything that's going on and, and, and the issues that are involved in the church, it's all coming to light. Because the Holy Spirit wants to say, not in my house. This is too important for us to be hiding and holding on to sin. So I can, I'll invite the worship team up um, as I close. And I just want to say, what would it look like if we lived with the fear of the Lord like the church did? Because in 5.11 it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You want to know what that looks like? Go to Acts 5.12. The heading for that says, Many signs and wonders done. When we have a proper fear of God and understanding of the severity of what's going on, we are going to see signs and wonders and we're going to see this place be turned upside down when we have a proper fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it's unsettling to think about how severe these consequences are. But I pray that as we think on this message and as we think about your word and what you want for this church, Father, I think that something that's so essential is a hatred of our sin. I pray for every person in this room this morning that you will shine a light in our lives, expose our sin that we're holding on to. Father, this is too important to let go. This is too important to ignore. I pray that you spark the fear of God in us and that we go out from this place changed.